You're listening to a Sin podcast made by young people at the Student Youth Network. For more Sin goodness, head to sin.org.au. on top, these guys partied to a different beat. Don't you know what KISS stands for? Knights in Satan's service. We just watched Dan's mom torch our KISS tickets. Nobody's missing that concert tomorrow night. We're not slim the Lord's car. Damn right we are. The night is young, filled with possibilities. Beth? Yes? Oh. Hey, you little twerps. Give me a kiss ticket so I'll pop your faces in. Kiss! Stop. <laughs> You're the coolest. Detroit Rock City. It's a girl walking along the side of the highway. We should pull over and help her out. I mean, they, they make scary movies that start out like that. Hey, but, but they make porno movies that start out like that too, man. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Underrated Rotten Movies, where we do what it says on the tin. We talk about movies that are rotten on Rotten Tomatoes that are, in fact, underrated. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Lindsay West, manager of Kiss This. Lindsay, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, what film are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about the cult classic Detroit Rock City. Wonderful. Should be a great discussion as we talk about this classic Kiss film today. So, uh, Lindsay, I just wanted to start with the context of the film, the sort of the era that it came out in. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of Kiss nostalgia um, bubbling to the surface throughout that whole era between the conventions and the tribute albums and the tribute bands and, and the bands that were being influenced uh, by Kiss. And all that sort of led to the reunion of the original lineup, Full Makeup and Costumes, which is what allowed the film to be made because obviously if the band hadn't have existed in that incarnation, then you couldn't have filmed the final sequence. But uh, yeah, I was just wanting your perspective on the kind of Kiss nostalgia that built up to the conception of this movie. Sure. So I like to refer to the period before the reunion as the dark times. So for, for Kiss Bananas, like myself, everyone else around the early 90s was into the grunge thing. And anything that was old school rock and roll that had any kind of spectacle or flair was daggy. You know, it was, it was dad rock or whatever. So it was around that time, Kiss Bananas felt this sort of isolation. So the, the reunion was kind of a, it was long dreamt about and it was like a, a second coming. And it, it did see Kiss again being the part of culture that they had been in the 70s. It was, um, 
It was a really cool time. The movie was part of that wave, but it's funny because I went to the first possible screening I could get to was touted as being the thing that's going to bring bring Kiss up back into the, the forefront of pop culture. I reckon there are about 20 people in the theatre session that I was at <laughs> and the film was what it was. And, uh, yeah, it, it was a... You know, I enjoyed it. I... I've seen a lot of films. I can sort of do a, a, an objective critique, and but it's got Kiss on it. You know that that always earns a certain amount of points for a Kiss banana. It wasn't the second coming in the forefront of um, bringing Kiss back into the hearts and minds of of all all people everywhere like we thought it would be. But um, like like Kiss Kiss's mission, it was still a good time. Yeah, it's interesting because. I know, like, I'd venture to see if you agree with this take, uh, but Kiss frontman Paul Stanley, uh, his perspective on it is that the movie suffered from the marketing in the sense that people either mistook it for, oh, that's a Kiss movie and nothing else, or they misinterpreted it as, oh, it'd be more of a coming-of-age thing and I bet Kiss isn't even that big of a part of it. Uh, do you think that's why something was lost in translation to the general public? I think so, because the the impression I always got from all the lead-up to it was it was a Kiss movie, and they were featured just in the mock-up concert scene at the end, and well, spoilers, but um, <laughs> it was a jumble. The, the message it put out there leading up to the film was a jumble, so the the target audience were already involved anyway and the marketing didn't do anything to bring in a larger audience so mm. that 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 could be something to do with with why it was it did as well as it did totally because i tend to agree with that perspective because a film that came out that same year was american pie which is very similar it has a similar structure and a similar tone and vibe and it would only logically it would make sense that oh well if you attach one of the most popular bands in the world to that then it would be dynamite. But, yeah, something just didn't communicate that it would be of the same vein as A Day's Confused or An American Pie. The majority of the budget of the movie was to go to the soundtrack because they tested the movie with all of the classic songs that they could imagine and then that was what test audiences responded to the most was, wow, the music was used really well. So they were in this corner where a lot of money that could have gone towards like, yeah, like trailers and posters and interviews that really got the message out. Some of that had to be sacrificed for the music that's so integral to the movie. Or do you think they could have struck a, a more balanced approach there? Oh, I'm not sure because look, the takeaway I had from the whole experience of the film was the soundtrack. I spun that ad nauseum. I, I thought it was great. The reworked covers of, of old tunes from that era, a lot of them I, I still listen to, you know, I, I, I really dug the soundtrack. So to think that it was a, a notion of either one or marketing or a good soundtrack, you know, I, I think someone's messed up and, and hasn't, hasn't done their job properly then if they were in a position where, where it was either one or the other, you know, it should be both. So, mm. Yeah, so look, I actually didn't know there was that issue where they they sunk a lot of the money into a lot of their marketing money into the soundtrack rather than marketing. Um, mm. 
Yeah, that's what's unfortunate is, you know, a lot of the titles that are discussed on this podcast, the legacy is, oh, look at how critics didn't respond to it, but, you know, the word of mouth got out there and, and that kind of box office success that, that clashes with uh, the critical backlash. And, yeah, it's just unfortunate in the case of uh, Detroit Rock City that not only did critics not respond to it well, but, yeah, that marketing push wasn't quite there to get people in the theatre from that. You have this evolution that where it becomes a cult classic and it really finds its audience on home video and it's a fan favourite. And uh, a few years ago, there were, in America, there was a whole a Blu-ray release of it where there was you know, commentary and all these bonus features and obviously that would have been really expensive. How do you think that the movie made that jump in the years to come from what would have been perceived as a flash in the pan to then, oh, it, it found its place? I think... The critics become irrelevant after a certain period, so cult classics tend to develop long after the cycle of marketing, reviews, um, editorials. Now it happens a lot quicker too with the advent of the internet and everything, but um, that cycle that happens when a film's released becomes irrelevant, so it's it's a more uh, pure representation of well, what what did the people watching think of it? And that's that's more important than all that buzz that happens in that time. So a lot of that, when that becomes irrelevant, then it does sort of elevate its status because people are, it's purely people's response, not, not people who are paid to write articles about its response. That's how I think cult things of form. I mean, you see that with a lot of other things, like Rocky Horror was, was a, a cult, and it was a fizzer at the time it, it um, was released. Blade Runner. Um, the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. When people are allowed to appreciate themselves in their own way, free of, of the, the stars or the, the hype, tomatoes yeah. or the... Free of all that aspect of it to skew whatever they think. Look, I, I know people who have said, oh, I'm not seeing that film because it got a crap review in Rotten Tomatoes. Should you really be letting what, what a professional or a semi-professional internet person on the other side of the world, should you really be letting them influence whether or not you want to see a film? So that, that's why cult films happen, because all that stuff has become irrelevant by the time they get around to seeing it and they they enjoy it without that sort of influence see and that's what i'm trying to combat uh using this this show as a vehicle to do that like i would hate for you know to use this movie as an example i would hate for someone to intentionally miss out on detroit rock city because oh look at that score that it has you know there's more to it and you know the movie like is valid and it has its merits just because the majority of critics back then didn't respond to it doesn't mean that people now won't. I just wanted to talk about some of it, like, favourite scenes in the movie. Do you have any moments that just absolutely just resonate with you or that you think of when you think of the title? I love the opening sequence with Jam's mother um, with a glass of red and humming the carpenter's tune as she goes mm. to put on her carpenter's record and I mean, it, it's stupid. Like, why can't she just take the, the Kiss record that's accidentally played and say, why can't she just press stop? You know, why mm. Why does she have to destroy half the wall unit? To, but it, it's just funny. You know, it's, oh, a, totally. it's a caricatured 
response because that was the mood around the time to do with kiss with parents you know mm. they, they they're satanic they they're assaulting their ears and i just love how it's sort of a caricature of the the stereotyped uh, parent who hates kiss i mean it happened it happened a decade before with the beatles and with elvis and I, so that scene i love you know i love that it opens with I Stole Your Love, which is sort of a left of centre kiss tune, you know. It's, oh, not it's an underrated song, yeah. Hits, you know. Definitely. Um, the concert mock-up at the end, I, I really love that because they were all, they'd all looked after themselves, so they pretty much looked exactly like they did. You know, they put on the, the costumes from the era and they even changed back to the... Uh, Gene was using the, the bass he used back at that era, even though he wasn't using it uh, in that modern day at the time um same with paul i really dug that um bit you know it's the kiss purists are going well he didn't he gene doesn't spit blood in detroit rock city and and all that but um i remember people saying that at the time and i was saying to them well it's a film totally you know, like, that bit's a lot of fun the high school stuff i the whole monitor chasing and thing and uh, all that it's just fun it's, oh definitely um, yeah, so the, for me, my favourite scene was the, the concert at the <coughs> end and the, the opening with his mother um, mm. putting on the... thinking it's the Carpenters and it's it's um, Love Gun album and her freaking out and ripping everything up. Oh, know. absolutely. And that, that's a great point that you make too where it starts and it ends on a high note. What, what I like about that scene is that Jam's mother isn't supposed to be relatable. So if right from the get-go she seems like she's being... Yeah, harsh or, or over the top about it. That's that's what the audience is supposed to feel, because that that's what Jam and his friends feel, right from the start, putting you in the mindset of the characters that you are supposed to like and resonate with. Do you like the uh, the montage at the start with uh, with Love Gun and high points of the seventies? I think that works really well to sort of put you in that world. Um, to, to tell you what was going on at the time, um, to try and give you a... That's when a movie works well, when it, when it can use a short space to put you, immerse you in the world and let you know exactly who's who and what's going on. So, yeah, I really liked that. A lot of those little grabs, the photos and the magazines and that that come up in that montage is, is really cool stuff. Like, that sequence alone is really impressive. But it's also, it, it carries over throughout the film in the sense that they, they do stick to the time period really closely. I feel like that's a big achievement because if you're going to do a movie like that where it is a period piece, a lot of attention to detail should be brought to recreating the era. And yeah, I feel Detroit City does that, does that really well. Yeah, the, the production design for the, the 70s, especially in the high school and, and all that, was really good. Um, Actually, I only read later and had to re-watch and look for it, the, um, the scene where they're driving on the, the highway mm. and there's toll technology on the roads that you can see. Like, I didn't even notice it in my first couple of times watching. So, you know, that to me, that wasn't a, wasn't a major issue, you know. If you have to sort of learn that it's there and then go back and keep hitting pause to try and find it, you know, it's a... It's a bit of a moot point, I think. Oh, I, I completely agree. Like that, That's something I didn't notice until uh, researching it for, for this podcast. 
So for someone to think that that's something that stops them from enjoying the movie, I just don't understand that that mindset, uh, especially because it's so brief too. Yeah, and it, it it doesn't. It's too fleeting to take you out of the world. Exactly. When, when there's things that break the fourth wall accidentally that take you out of the world, that's when it's a you can criticise it. But I, I don't think that reading those reviews that bring that up, I, I mm. just don't think that it's relevant at all. I think they're clutching at straws with that one. Exactly. One one of my favourite scenes is when Jam's mother, she comes all that way to the school just to burn the tickets right in front of the friends. Like, you really do feel it, that, that devastation. Do, do you think that scene conveys that well? Yeah, well, it's the, the idea of loss and tragedy, you know, so close but so far. They're right in front of them burning, you know, and it's real world in me saying, well, how can she be burning the other kids' tickets? You know, that's, that's not okay, you know. Uh, appreciating it as a bit of fun. It, and it, it's kind of a... The whole thing is kind of a caricature of the time as well. And a lot of pop culture stuff of the time was, you know, in TV shows and that was kids versus parents. The parents are the villains and they just don't understand and all that stuff. So... They're the man. That... It was, it was part of the fun, you know. It was... Um, yeah, but that, that scene was pretty funny how the, yeah, the, the, the tragedy just set them on their quest, you know, it's, you could apply that sort of same sort of thing to a lot, a lot of different films, you know, it's a, um, yeah, I, I like that scene too. Yeah, definitely, it, it, it follows that structure really well, that, that Joseph Campbell, Hero of a Thousand Faces uh, layout, yeah, definitely hits all those beats. It, it is really well set up, you know, to the point where, obviously, you know, him being embarrassed in front of the whole school and having his tickets to this particular show burnt, that's bad enough anyway. But you have that scene in, when they're at their lockers and, you know, they're discussing how they already hate the mother and how they've already missed out on Kiss three or four times. It, it's not like the moment comes out of nowhere. Like, it, it's the next logical point in the narrative to what they've set up with, with conversations like that. How do you feel about... This is, for me, it's one of the only low points in the movie... Um, but it's accompanied by a great uh, Kiss song called Ladies' Room. But did you appreciate the the women's bathroom scene where they, like, knock over the, the stalls and the girls, like, screaming? And for me, that's not one of my favourite scenes. I was just wondering how you felt about that. Well, th- that's sort of reflective of the mishmash of different tones they also had in the film too. Because mm. there were times where it's cartoony, almost Scooby-Doo-like. And then there's some other sort of really kind of heavy themes, um, like the mechanic guys tying up... Uh, Christine, yeah. Yeah, and, and they're about to yeah, have their way with her. That scene too, for me, that missed the mark. Mm. Um, it, just, it just seemed forced. Like, why would the whole thing fall down and water spurt everywhere just because they were standing on the box? So that... that didn't work for me. Um, I thought it was silly that she's screaming her head off, and yeah. so yeah, just I don't know whether someone else wrote that mm. on on the day they just did it on the fly and thought it was a good idea at the time and improvised sort of comedy. Yeah, it just yeah, I I, I thought that was a miss that that scene. 
Yes, yeah, so I, I feel the exact same way. It's very much a curveball uh, of a scene. But it's followed by a scene you mentioned earlier, which is one of my favourites, um, the escape scene where they come across uh, the geek with the computer and they just, like, chug it down the stairs and his reaction is like, hey, I'm responsible for that. <laughs> um, Elvis is just furious that he didn't catch them and, yeah, I, I think that's a fun um, sequence there. Do you like, uh, I, I thought it was pretty clever the way that they snuck in to the boarding school as deliver, with delivering the pizza. Do you think that, I mean, obviously that wouldn't happen in real life, but I was just wondering how you felt about that scene. Again, that's kind of a miss, miss the mark for me. I like the notion of them spiking the pizza and, and the um, Catholic priest, you know, becoming uninhibited and that was all right. But yeah, I, I think they could have thought of something a little bit better to get him out of the school. I can understand that. But do you like uh, the highway scene where you have the, the disco freaks and the whole confrontation? I love how they set up that duality of there were people into disco and there were people into rock and roll and um, it, it was sort of, there was animosity. I, I liked that, especially because the... <laughs> they call them the Guidos. Mm. <laughs> uh, especially because they were... Those guys, I'm certain, were the archetype. They were on purpose, the archetype of Saturday Night Fever. They were... They were exactly that... Those guys. So I like how they set up the rivalry and had them clash. And, yeah, I, I thought that worked. How they arrived at it with them throwing the pizza and all that was... Neither here nor there about that, but the mm. um, yeah, I did enjoy that scene, and especially how it got resolved. You know, they put pushed the Trans Am off into the into the water and tied them up. You know, I thought that was funny. You know, Definitely, it, yeah. It, a bit cartoony. It was fun. It could have taken a darker tone, but it still stayed on the, the sort of cartoony level. And mm. Made made it fun. Um, I couldn't imagine you'd, you you could have a lot of the scenes they have in Detroit Rock City in a film now. You know, it would um, really ruffle feathers and you know force people to change things. And yeah, it's, I like the highway scene. But for me, what I like about the scene is it, it's kind of a two for one because you get this really well directed, uh, well choreographed uh, action sequence um, as kind of a car chase. But then you also get this really effective uh, comedic scene, um, just with the whole the banter and the back and forth between the rockers and and the disco freaks. Uh, did you like the Simple Simon scene, where they you know they've travelled all this way thinking the tickets are with him, and sure enough, uh, tripped and give them the the details. Yeah, and actually it it was a payoff because. Um to me, earlier in the film, when Trip runs in saying, I won, I won, it just sounded too easy. Mm. So I actually, when I first watched it, was thinking, well, what, what's going to go wrong here? How could he have just won VIP packages like that? And, mm. and I actually love how they played the tape back instead of just telling him, oh, no, you, you hung up before you gave us the... You, Details. Oh, exactly, I love yeah. how they played the tape. <laughs> totally. <laughs> it was great. That, 
the, the turnaround, you know, because they were riding on high after their first few challenges and then, mm. um, yeah, bam, and they weren't expecting it. That, that was a good setup. I liked it. Yeah, totally. It was a, it was a payoff. It was, it was good. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Very well, very well written. And uh, it's funny too because Simple Simon, he could have easily been more cynical and he could have taken that approach of like, you're an idiot and like, but instead it's like, I'm sorry, man. Like, he doesn't rub it in that it's it's not his fault. Do you like the sequence where they kind of splinter off into their own adventures? Something like that was appropriate because they, they set them all up and they've pretty much been in every scene together mm. and they all kind of melded into one unit up until that point. So there wasn't really much in the way of who each guy is and they must have sort of made them four guys because Kiss is four guys. Yes, and, very much so. Um, so up until that point, you don't really see... There's nothing to make you like one over the other. They're all... They're just uh, every man teenager up until that point. And those, so the splintering off, I think, was needed. They maybe could have done a bit more of that earlier on. But the splintering off, how it sort of follows four different stories for a while there, again, that's kind of part of the the mismatch of different tones mm. that it takes because their stories do sort of diverge tone, tonally all in the one film. That's very true because the main theme to all of that is loss of innocence, sexual deviance and all that kind of stuff. But then you have Trip and he's... Fully intending to assault, beat up a little kid yeah, and take two little his kids. money, or take his kiss tickets. Yeah, totally. I love those two brothers. I love how the little kid is the brains. Yes, and the the, the big brother is is the muscle, and the kid is the devious one with all the the evil plans. Mm. And that that was a trope that was in so many Hanna Barbera cartoons. Mm. I, I like that, but they're the difference in tones, Lex's one is, it starts out cartoony because he sneaks backstage and he sees this wonderful fairyland mm. of backstage at a Kiss concert with inflatable hot tubs and topless women and lights and I think there's like carnival rides and stuff in there Glass as well. Glass cakes and, and... Yeah, so that, that, that's kind of cool. And a part of the fun, but then his next bit is um, with the finding the car and the chop shop guys and that. That that's like a different movie. That yeah, part. definitely. Um, and the, it kind of gets solved as a Deus ex machina with the dogs. You know, mm. it um, yeah, that was that was a bit of a downer. I thought his his story, um, Hawks stories, Edward Furlong doing the strip show. Yes. Yeah. It didn't make sense. Even in the world they've already set up, the, the, the universe, it didn't make sense within its own rules um, mm. that he would... There's all these muscle guys doing their thing and, and then he gets up and he's a scrawny dude and he spews his guts out and then does a, a stupid off-the-cuff dance and... But the, then all the ladies who were booing him a second ago all start applauding and they love it, you know. Just none of that makes sense, even, no. in, even in the 
their own universe. So the that was that sort of missed the mark, and uh, it was good to see Shannon Tweed in it. Mm. Um, again, her character didn't make sense. Like, why was she interested in him? I don't think it was written as a way to get Jean's partner into the movie, though. But, yeah, I, think I don't think was. so. <laughs> and even the dog thing, uh, where that, I feel like if that was in a modern movie, it would come out of nowhere. But towards the start of the movie, you know, you have him describing the disco ladies as dogs and, man, I hate dogs. And <laughs> I mean, obviously, I'm stretching to call that setup, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. Like, there is... You can trace it back. Because uh, even uh, when uh, Tripp is at the comic book store and he's about to... He thinks he's about to rob out the clerk there and all of a sudden the guys appear as his conscious and he's like, you know, okay, everybody shut up and everyone's looking at him. That was that goes back to what you were saying about character development because it's not implied that he thinks like that or has that mindset uh, earlier in the movie. And so then to reveal that, yeah, it brings another level of, of depth to his character. Do you like that scene where he's about to hold a stand-up? Oh, and then the real bandit comes in. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I like the, again, part of the love letter to the period was the Stretch Armstrong doll. Yes. How he, um, he, he saves the day inadvertently with the Stretch Armstrong doll. I thought that was pretty funny. Mm. Um, it's great f- physical comedy. Yeah. Again, it's like with the whole film, they th- just threw in all this different stuff and squished it together and hoped it would it would go all right. You know, mm. it's, it's like they didn't have a set mission uh, from the beginning to it's going to be this kind of film or it's going to be that kind of film. It was it it sort of adds to its um, being uneven. Yeah, it's it's lasting appeal to me is also pondering why, you know, why did they do that scene? Why? Did yeah. They, when they'd set up all this comedic stuff, why did they suddenly do this dark bit there? And um, so it it kind of adds to its mystery, you know. It's it's definitely not bland experience no, not watching it. You know, if it's yeah something like this being such a peculiar case is. Mm. Um, I think that could also add to the to its status as a cult film. Totally, and it's one and it's one of those things too where the failures are then maybe not made up for, but like they're not repeated. Where, like you said, why is Shannon Tweed attracted to Edward Furlong? It doesn't really make sense. But when you look at the clerk being attracted to Trip, that completely makes sense because of the adrenaline of, of the moment. You can't believe what she's just seen, and so her character makes. More sense. Yeah, well, see, that that is sort of the payoff of a, a teenage boy's fantasy, you know? Stop yes. It, stopping the bad guy and and the, the girl fawns over him. And, um, yeah, so that, that's a funny cartoony moment. It, it's, it's good. Totally. Yeah, and it, it kind of... I think it's very deliberate, the fact that he's at the comic book uh, rack right before he does that because it is very much so something that would have happened in, in like, a Marvel comic at that time. Uh, it has that kind of Spider-Man um, feel to it. Do you like how they... I mean, I love it. I think it's great physical comedy, but do you like how they beat each other up and then that convinces uh, the clerk to be like, 
well, they must have been beaten up in the way that um, Chongo and, and all that, uh, you know, take the blame for it. Well, I like the payoff how those guys cop it and the security guys grab them and kick them out. I, I think that, that works pretty well. Um, is, is it a, a moral lesson to be learned that you can get what you want by beating each other up and lying? And No, it's not. But, um, yeah, it's good to see, especially the smart little kid, it's good to see them get sort of their comeuppance. Definitely. Although the little kid started as a victim, he instantly, the moment you saw what his character was like, how he was calculated and, and entrepreneurial mm. and, you know, uh, manipulative and it's, it's good to see that payoff. And like I like those sort of shots. A lot of the cinematography doesn't get talked about because that, that in itself is, is something worth discussing too because it's a bit of a mismatch of different styles as well. That, um, mm. Like the... The double doors opening in slow motion when the security guys let them into the concert, and those sort of shots with, um, they're almost sort of J.J. Abrams kind of shots. They're just missing the lens flare, you mm. know. It, um, it's very dreamlike. Yeah, too. that that that's pretty cool. Then that that's the scene that op- the sequence that opens up into the concert scene. But um, a lot of the other sort of uh, shots you see throughout fast cuts and these whoosh sound effects and stuff. It saw a lot of that in shows like Scrubs and Community, um, which are all sort of light-hearted comedy that are a, a little bit removed from actual reality. Um, that was uh, a, a nice touch and it's, it's something I think about too when I'm con- considering the film is that the what sort of styles were they using in, in shooting and again it's it's like like the tones and everything with this film it's it's all over the place as you can tell one of my main uh, points with the movie is that you can really feel it when the events take place and I think the kiss concert is the best example of that because it's like you really do feel that elation of well these guys have been through so much and tried as hard as they can and thought as much as they can. The way it is, it, like, it really is a grand finale. It's not just the last thing that happens in the movie. Like, you really do feel that sense of, wow. The KISS fan viewer on their first time... Can relate to it. ...is going through the same thing because they just want to see KISS too when they're watching <laughs> the film. You know, when's KISS on? When's KISS on? When's KISS on? Oh, they're here. Yeah, so I, I felt that when I watched it. It was, it was great to... The, the doors opening, the, the security guys letting us in and then we get to see them. I, I really got a kick out of it, mate. I mean, I understand. Like, obviously, like we're saying, the marketing uh, miscommunicated how much Kiss is in the movie. But for me, I find it realistic that they themselves aren't in the movie because uh, the whole effort that they were going to at that time to conceal their faces and conceal their private identities and hide their real names and all that kind of thing, them being around in the street and the guys coming across, yeah, these guys who are, have handkerchiefs over their face and it just happens to be Kiss. Like. Well, it, it's good that they s- established them right through the film as mythical deities, you know. They Definitely. Were, um, as, as they were to the world back then. 
So it's, that was good. Oh, totally. Yeah, because th there's that, uh, that great moment after uh, the church scene where Rose asks, like, is it true that Jean's tongue is grafted on from a cow's and, and all that kind of stuff? Because people did feel that way. Mm. Um, and, and, that, and that's what's interesting about the movie, the historical context, you know, right outside the church. There's all those signs of, like, you know, band kiss, they're the knights in Satan's service and all that kind of stuff. That is actually real. Like, people watching the film might think, like, oh, yeah, that goes along with the cartoony element. No, but that was actually well, happening yeah. in society. There's a same, same thing, though, with um, the Beatles and Elvis and, and all that. So Kiss were in good company in that sense mm. that um, all that all that stuff that was actually happening was reflected in the movie, although a caricature version, like there was no Mat Mock organisation that, oh, what was that, Mothers Against the Music of Kiss. That's right. The, yeah, Mat Mock. Great memory. There, was, there wasn't a Mat Mock. The only sort of um, acronym that got applied was they would say KISS meant knights in Satan's service or kids in Satan's service. But mm. it, I thought it was a funny touch that they they made the group against them. They gave them a, their own acronym, you know, and it was a stupid acronym. So yeah, totally. It, you know, I thought that was, that was pretty funny too. I wouldn't say it was a snapshot of, of life in the times. I, I like to say it's kind of a love letter to life in the times because it... All the, all the facets of it are all heightened, probably to make them uh, palatable in a, in a comedy film. They're, mm. they're all sort of exaggerated. Definitely. That makes it all the more fun. It's a light-hearted way of communicating that information to the audience. Yeah. I, I feel like if the movie was more bland, we would have had Lynn Shea, like, showing out her son for five minutes about the band, and, yeah, now you get that she's not... You know, that she doesn't approve of it. But, you know, that would have been kind of the boilerplate way to do it but instead the way it's you know the shaking of the cabinet and the the whole thing it's like yeah it's just more fun to watch in terms of kiss's cinematic canon uh you mentioned hannah barbaria earlier that's very telling because we have kiss meets the phantom of, of the we, park we don't kiss fans don't talk about kiss meets the phantom of the park and and kiss <laughs> themselves don't talk about it you know no but it's true that i i read somewhere that if you were employed by the band, you could not discuss it in their presence. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably true. I mean, I, I, if I was in that, I probably wouldn't want it discussed either. No, <laughs> definitely not. But we also have Kiss Meets Scooby-Doo, rock and roll mystery. When you look at what they were trying to achieve with Phantom of the Park, it's like they actually achieved it with the Scooby-Doo film. Yeah. How do you, do you rank Detroit Rock City with those other two films? The Scooby-Doo cartoon film knocked it out of the park because it also had that self-awareness. Like the manager keeps darting into shots saying, this Kiss product's available for this much, you know. They're, so they have, there's that self-awareness in there that they're in on the joke with us too, that mm. Kiss is a brand. And so that, I think that was the, what they were trying to do in the 70s done perfectly. I mean, the, what they were trying to do in the 70s with Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, it mm. was pitched to them as a hard day's night meets Star Wars. And the end result was anything but. <laughs> yeah. The, the Phantom of the Park is... Oh, where do I start? <laughs> it's, um, it's abhorrent, you know. It's an abomination. Totally. It, it's shocking. Like, 
Peter Chris's voice isn't even in it because mm. he didn't want to participate in it to the point he wouldn't come. He, he'd mumble his dialogue and only want to do one take and they had to get Hanna-Barbera cartoon voice actor to come in and um, do his voice. Michael Bell, I think it was, um, come in and do his voice afterwards. They had to constantly... Uh, remove lines of dialogue from Ace because he, again, didn't want to participate. The dialogue that was said by the band, like Paul and Gene, was cringeworthy. <laughs> Super quotable, though. Like oh, around, yeah. around my Kiss Banana friends, you know, it's, it's, it's not uncommon for a normal conversation and to come up, you'd end up saying, you're looking for something, but it's not Kiss. Uh, it's feeding time for the demon. <laughs> This is serious, Catman, and they've got guns. You know, all, all it's highly quotable because of how terrible it is. So Definitely. yes, it's it, mission accomplished with Kiss because it's a good time, mm. but it's it's abhorrent. It's it's terrible piece of cinema. It's um, I understand why they don't let their staff talk about it in their presence. Mm. You know, um, but the the Scooby Doo one was. Was they, it's like they went back and fixed it. You know, yeah, absolutely. That, that's what we were trying to do. But there are a couple of other noteworthy mentions of films to do with Kiss. And, oh, Role um, Models is fantastic. Rob, the Kiss mission is about having a good time. Um, it's, it's accomplished with watching Detroit Rock City. I mean, you, it, it's a fun film. Uh, and I see trying to find Citizen Kane in it is... Mm. Um, and do so at your folly. I think it's um, it's a fun mess, but the 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 emphasis word there is fun, and that's what they set out to do. And so that's what they did. All the films that we've mentioned that have Kiss in them or feature Kiss prominently, um, you know, obviously they're comedies. But there's a movie coming out next year called uh, Spinning Gold, which is uh, a biopic of Neil Bogart, who formed uh, Casablanca Records, and and Kiss was the first actor on that. And I wonder if that that could be our first like serious take on Kiss, where they'll where them and their whole crusade will be portrayed with that realism. Well, that sounds great. I didn't even know that was happening, but um, yeah, well, that's good news then. Um, so, it, is it focused on his bid to make Kiss happen, or is it more about the whole label? Oh, it, it, it encapsulates the whole. Uh, mission from Parliament to <clears throat> Donna Summer to Kiss to the Village People. Um, it, it's about the whole, the entire career of Neil Bogart. Great, because at the time Kiss was their only rock act. Everything that's true. Else was, yeah, that that's very good news. I'd it's one of those things where I feel like Spinning Gold might have that that crossover appeal, where you go, ah, oh, yeah, you know, people who maybe never got into them or don't respect them right now they might see how their history unfolds in the movie and be like, oh, I do respect them now because look at how they just clawed their way to the top and Neil Bogart's contribution to that. Well, since everything else has been sort of light affair, it, it may uh, cast them in a, in a different light that, that would make people appreciate more what they achieved, you know, because they, whether people liked them or not, they were... Uh, a permanent part of pop culture. Oh, absolutely. Um, they went from being a band to what what they saw 
when they were coming up was the Beatles, how they went from being a band to being a part of culture. Kiss did the, the same thing. Um, oh, exactly. I mean, they actually broke the Beatles uh, record at uh, uh, Budokan, Budokan Hall. No, no one's been like them. Um, no one will be like them again. The, while a lot of the rock and roll tropes, they didn't invent themselves, they made you think they did because they did it that much bigger and better than the ones who invented it. But um, you forever associated Kiss with those tropes. Um, the, the big uh, stadium stage show, no one else does that. Um, well, I, I can think of maybe a handful of acts that do anything close to what they do. Mm. Um, Especially at their age. Well, that's, that's a feat in itself. I mean, just wearing the gear is hard enough. The boots are stupid. Mm. Um, in Kiss This, we uh, have some idea of some of the, the challenges of putting on that kind of show. It takes two hours to put on the makeup. Um, takes me ten minutes to lace up my um, Paul Stanley boots. Uh, pretty much every show, there's an there's an almost moment where you go over on on your boots. Mm. Uh, you, they're they're not natural to walk in, let alone um, jump and shimmy and shake and kick and all that stuff. And the, those the real guys are doing it into their late sixties. You know, it's it's a amazing. I mean, if they didn't have all that stuff, they probably could play until they were nearly 80. Exactly, yeah, be um, like the Stones. Yeah, but the, the the fact that they have all that stuff to do and the, the fire breathing and the blood spitting and it's... You have to be athletes, you know. It's oh, yeah. Like, and it's, um, it's really commendable that they're still doing it. A lot of people say it's, it's bad that they're still doing it, but... Um, Part of being a Kiss Banana myself, I, I want to see them as many times as I can. Um, Same here. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've gone to the... I've flown across the Pacific and got on a ship to see them in the Kiss Cruise. I've done that twice already. I'm doing that again this October. Uh, there was a period where I would go to multiple shows whenever they came. Yeah, it's... I'm really looking forward to seeing them on their final tour, which is coming up soon. The, um, the end of the road tour? That's the one, and they've said they're pulling out all the stops and the YouTube clips I'm seeing with people recorded. Uh, they've, they've sort of notched it up a level from previous tours. You know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Going back to the, the film Detroit City, do you think that anyone was miscast? Because I, I personally don't. I think all the actors did a great job with their material and they're all very likeable. Yeah, look, I, I don't... Nothing sort of jumps out as, um, no, that, that role shouldn't have been that person. Um, I think at the time they used sort of a relative bunch of unknowns that might have been sort of about budget. Hmm. Um, Apart from Edward Furlong. Edward Furlong. It was obviously like American History X and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Yeah, and so even Edward Furlong's funny for me because um, he 
never sort of, although after Terminator he did American History X, which is very heavy subject matter, and there was another film, American Heart, which was sort of a drama character piece as well. Okay. He never sort of showed, he never had the success everyone was expecting, I guess, so I'm, I'm trying to, and at the time when I read about the casting of him, I actually thought, oh, well, times must be tough for him doing a, a Kiss movie, you know, because I, I thought he was on this trajectory to be this character actor and, you know, kind of take the same kind of path as Leonardo DiCaprio had mm. where he was a sort of bubblegum kids sitcom type but then he started taking all these independent movies and really showed he's, he's got chops and range and stuff and then he just it went astronomical and I, I had in the back of my head that that would be the sort of path that Edward Furlong took but it just didn't happen and then I think, I actually think Detroit Rock City was probably the death knell for his 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 trajectory like that, mm. you know, it's um, it's it's sad. And I have seen recent footage of him now. It was I think it was a convention where, funnily enough, to as testament to the film's cult status, he and Giuseppe Giuseppe Andrews, um, he and Edward Furlong were at uh, some kind of convention panel answering questions about Detroit Rock City in their movie outfits. Mm. So it's, oh, that's cool. it's had a lasting effect, you know. It's, it's, it's part, of, part of culture and it was, it's become a thing. Totally. Um, you never hear of them doing anything else. You find YouTube footage of them answering questions about a film from 20 years ago at conventions, you know. So it is a shame because... Um, like a big Terminator fan as well. So yes. I, I was gutted when Edward Furlong was replaced by Nick Stahl. And yes. I was gutted when when Edward Furlong was again overlooked and, and it was Christian Bale, you know, and I was, again, when Jason Clark got it and they kept overlooking. Surely it would have been a great comeback story for him to, to show up sort of... Uh, world weary and, and and a bit battle damaged but but come back in sort of shape and kick some ass, you know, it would have been totally. really good, good yeah. to see. I mean and see I was expecting that this year with uh, Terminator Dark Fate. Uh was I thought, all right, now this will be his comeback vehicle. No. Uh, that Terminator's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down. I've got all sorts of yeah, that's off topic. But uh, Edward Furlong I would love to have seen him do other stuff, but he, he just, it just never happened for him. It would have been good. It's unfortunate. <laughs> Moving on to uh, some criticisms of the film, I just wanted, I, I thought it would be good for us to, to discuss th these reviews that are published on Rotten Tomatoes, and I just wanted to look at some poor quotes and we can discuss whether sure. these are fair criticisms or unfair criticisms. So the first one that seemed to jump out was, this movie is... Produced by Gene Simmons, it's a commercial for Kiss albums. How do you feel about that? Um, well, I'm sure he would be the first one to say, well, yes, that's exactly what it is. 
um, pointing out something like it's a gotcha moment. Oh, you, this is just a kiss commercial. Gotcha. Mm. It's not really a gotcha because that was the mission. Totally. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't see that as a legitimate criticism at all. No. I mean, they're transparent with all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so to kind of pour them up on it, it's yeah. like, no, they'd be the first to tell you. That is the trap that a lot of musical movies fall into, is oh, it being, you know, it's shelling a particular artist. But I kind of think Detroit Rock City escapes that, in a sense, because it encapsulates the whole era. And you look at the soundtrack, and there's a wide range of bands on there, um, some directly related to Kiss, some aren't. So do you think that it's a love letter to Kiss and the 70s, or do you think that the Kiss stuff overpowers it? I think it's more about the time than anything else. Because if it was a, if it was a, hundred percent a Kiss commercial, the soundtrack would have been all their own tunes. They wouldn't have had all these other um, acts that were running in the same trenches as of them at the time, like Cheap Trick and David Bowie and um, Sweet, uh, Thin Lizzy, Van Halen. You know, ACDC. No. So, yeah, I, I think I think it's more about a a love letter to the time than to be purely about Kiss themselves. It's just that because at the time Kiss was so all they were ubiquitous, you know, they were everywhere. So, of course, a snapshot of the time is going to heavily feature them over everyone else because they were so heavily featured over everyone else. Completely, and. That's another thing that the montage captured really well was, you know, there's a band being successful and then there's Kiss in the 70s where you're on the cover of every magazine, you're topping the Gallup poll, toys, like, it, it was a phenomenon beyond, I think, what the band themselves had even imagined. That's right. Uh, moving on, so there's a company called Common Sense Media and they... They write guides on whether or not a film is appropriate to show to children. And this is actually counted as a review um, that contributes to the rotten score. And basically, I just wanted your take on... I feel that's unfair because it's not aimed at children. It's very proudly MA15. And do you agree with me in the sense that whether or not a film is appropriate for children doesn't take away from the merit that it has? Well, measuring something being worthwhile by whether or not it's suitable for children, I, I just don't see any point to that at all because there's, there's using that as a parameter for its merit is folly. Um, there's so many films that are fantastic that aren't meant to be for children. Uh, you know, I, I would question someone who uses that as a... Um, as, as a a parameter for measuring how good something or how worthwhile something is is, oh, can children watch it? Mm. You know, there's, there's stuff that's great for children that I find unwatchable for adults. Definitely. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think that's a valid um, way to measure the merit of something at all. Yeah, totally. And it's one of those things, like, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to devalue what they do. Um, I think it's a helpful resource for parents and all that kind of stuff. But I just question why it contributes to the score on Tomatoes because it's not a review as such. It's just a guide to the actual content, which is what the rating is supposed to do anyway. 
like to me it would make more sense if a movie was oh yeah technically rated PG but kids still might be scared by it or something and th- and that's just not what Detroit Rock City is at all. Rotten Tomatoes and its validity is a whole other rabbit hole but um, just my curiosity though do you know what both the critic score and the audience scores were for Detroit Rock City? I do know the critic score is 48%. I would hazard a guess that the audience score is more. That's what I always sort of key as being more important than the critic score. But the audience score, 82%. There's that sort of um, dissonance between critic and audience scores in most things now. Like there's this, there's this real cognitive dissonance between what critics value and what what viewers value. Definitely, it's, it's happening now more than ever. I mm. think. Um, I see it a lot with new films, and I, I would be interested just to dig into a lot of older films and see what the what the difference is there. There's there's a real um, it's something worth researching. There's a real duality happening there. Oh, totally, and and and, that, and that's the whole. Like I said earlier, that's what I'm trying to explore on the show is these people who hold Rotten Tomatoes as the be all end all of film. Do they realise that various enjoyable great films? are rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, like, what are you going to do about it, you know? I think it's also, it's very appropriate with KISS, too, in terms of a project like Spinning Gold, hopefully, that is respected and, and respectable, but I think with Detroit Rock City, it definitely stays with the, with the KISS ethos of, you know, because KISS albums themselves did not get, you know, glowing critical reviews. No, they never did. They, by then, they'd sort of long discarded the, um, any sort of drive to please critics mm. I mean, their, their drive to please critics famously resulted in the Elder album which yes. they themselves disowned to this day. Definitely. But I, I think there's some good stuff on there. But oh, Paul Stanley's vocals are some of the best he ever recorded. I, I understand that from their point of view it was a misstep and that it, um, it was purely driven by trying to do something like the Who had done with Tommy mm. and Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd had done with the Wall and things like that. But um, they learnt the hard way that they're not a concept album, critic pleasing band. Yes. And um, I think it does them a service that they're self aware of that and that they never make that the focus of, of anything they do. That's why they're more fun than all the other bands. An- another criticism of the film this is actually the consensus on Ron Tomatoes is. Silly plot, over-the-top directing style. And, you know, if that's the consensus of how people felt at the time, fair enough. But it's such a dated criticism, I think, because you look at Edgar Wright and his whole filmography from the Cornetto trilogy to Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and, and then uh, Baby Driver. That's... He really milks all that. The, the hammy performances and the hyperactive camera... We see that in Detroit Rock City, so it obviously had an impact. Well, it's it's funny how it gets ripped on for that at the time, and then someone else comes and does something very similar, and they get fawned over a few years later. Mm. Um, but you see that happening a lot too in in all facets: TV shows, movies, um, music. That just. Something can be put out at the wrong time 
and doesn't catch to become that sort of trend, you know. Um, it doesn't uh, click with the zeitgeist. Yes. So you put that more succinctly than I could have done. So that was that was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. Uh, I suppose if if you wanted to get really nitpicky, I did notice a review on Rotten Tomatoes pointed out that Kiss did not play Cobra Hall in 1978. Well, no, they didn't. They they never proclaimed that it was a biopic. Exactly. Um, because they didn't have uh, inflatable hot tubs mm. and topless women with feathers and stuff in there. Plus, why are the road crew loading drums in half an hour before the show? And, you know, so yeah, a, yeah. a lot of that stuff doesn't... Uh, I don't see that as a legitimate criticism, really, that they didn't play, the, you know, that Gene, Gene didn't use... He didn't spit blood in Detroit Rock City or, mm. you know, Paul doesn't smash the guitar at the end of Detroit Rock City and Peter doesn't throw his sticks out at the end. Of Ace Frehley's smoking guitar and all that. Yeah, yeah. So, like, to, to nitpick to that sense that that person just needs to find something else to do, I think. Oh, yeah, <laughs> just, just completely overthinking it. Obviously, it's not like every single film has to only entertain, but Detroit Rock City is one of those movies. And... Yeah, to hold it to the standard of like, well, it's not claiming to be realistic, but it it better be. It's like, no, that's just a, you know, unfortunate mindset. Would you recommend Detroit Rock City? Do you think it is an underrated, rotten movie? I think it's definitely underrated. It is a good time. It never sets out to be anything else. It's a, it's a caricature look at, uh, a period in history that um, we'll never have a, the likes of again. Exactly, yeah, it's a great product of its time. Uh, classic hero's journey kind of... Do, do you think pe people would connect to it on that level? I I think so, yeah. It's, it has that, that same sort of arc. You know, it, it is a bit clunky and it's um, clumsy in its uh, execution. There's other films that do it far better, but... Um, yeah, it's still well well worth the, the checking it out. Definitely. No worries. Well, I, Mr West, I just wanted to thank you for your time and for your valuable perspective on, on KISS and, and the release of the film and the impact that it's had since then. Uh, thanks. It's been, a, it's been a, a blast to talk about two of my favourite things, KISS and movies. Absolutely. Same here. No worries. And thank you all for listening. See you next time. You've been listening to a Sin podcast from sin.org.au. Hope you liked it.